When a young family ventures into a remote Washington forest in search of the perfect Christmas tree, a dark mystery unfolds. Parents go missing, a child is found wandering alone in another town, and all of Washington State wonders whether a serial predator may be waiting in the woods in this episode of Last Seen Alive. This episode of Last Seen Alive is brought to you by Audible. Today, during my drive home from work, I finished listening to the book I told you about last time, Journey into Darkness, by the founder of the FBI's criminal profiling program, John Douglas, and author Mark Olshaker. You guys know how much I love John Douglas's books on criminal psychology, and I found this one especially compelling and relevant to my life because I'm a mom, and this book includes numbered steps on how to protect your children from the most disgusting type of predators child predators. I've already started implementing some of the steps with my own kids, and I definitely recommend this book to anyone with kids in their lives. If you're a parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whatever, it's definitely worth your time. It's one of those books that could potentially save a life. So get your copy and get it for free. Audible is offering a free 30-day trial to our listeners. Go to audibletrial.com slash lastseenalive to redeem your free month's membership and download a title of your choice like journey into darkness for free. That's audibletrial.com slash lastseenalive. Thanks for listening to Last Seen Alive. I'm your host, Leah. And I'm your co-host, Scott. Diana Robertson was last seen alive on December 12th, 1985. That morning, she ventured into the woods in Mineral, Washington, a tiny town in the southwestern part of the state, with her family. The three of them, Diana, 21, her boyfriend, Michael, 36, and their two-year-old daughter, Crystal, were on a mission to locate the perfect Christmas tree. With the holiday just two weeks away, it was now or never, and they wanted the ideal evergreen to light up their living room for Crystal's second-ever Christmas. How long had they been together? Since Diana was 17. Anyway, what better place to find a tree than the forest that grew beside Lake Mineral, undisturbed by development? The wilderness in Mineral is serene, visited mostly by fishermen and the occasional hiker. It's claim to fame, huge trout, and even bigger pine trees. It wasn't just the lure of a beautiful Christmas tree that had brought them there, though. Their trip served a dual purpose. Michael was a trapper, and while they were there, he planned to check the animal traps he'd laid in the wilderness. It made sense to accomplish both tasks while they were there, because they lived a little over an hour's drive away in Puyallup, a suburb of Tacoma. Whether they found the perfect tree, or whether Michael found any animals in his traps is unknown. Almost everything that happened that afternoon is unknown, because the only witness was too young to tell anyone how the events that robbed her of her family had unfolded. We only know, decades later, that the adventure into the wintertime woods ended terribly. It feels a little odd to me that he'd be setting traps over an hour away. Like, that's kind of just the kind of thing you need to check fairly regularly. He did. He checked them every other day. Okay. That was his job in the wintertime. In the summer, he worked as a roofer. In the winter, he trapped. He checked the traps very frequently. Okay. It first came to law enforcement's attention that something was wrong later that same day, when little Crystal was found wandering alone outside a Kmart store in the town of Spanaway. Spanaway is just under an hour's drive from Mineral, closer to Tacoma than to Mineral. Neither Diana nor Michael were anywhere to be seen, 
Law enforcement were quickly called and could only assume that Crystal was a lost or abandoned child. At age two, she of course didn't have any ID on her person, nor was there any sign of who had left her at the Kmart or why. According to the Seattle Times, Crystal was dazed but unharmed. When police asked her where her parents were, all Crystal could say was that, Mommy is in the trees. Later, these words would take on bone-chilling significance. Did they ever check, like, the Kmart surveillance? I actually have no idea. That's where I would start if I was had a child lost at a store, see when she first showed up. Yeah, that would be my first thought as well. But keep in mind, this was in 1985. I don't even know if they had surveillance, to be honest. I'd imagine it'd be some sort of something. Also, from what I've read, it sounds like she was wandering outside the store instead of inside the store. So like the parking lot area? That's what it sounded like, although I'm not 100% sure. And if that's the case, it sounds like whoever dropped her off intentionally left her outside so that they wouldn't be caught on any surveillance cameras. Yeah, that does sound pretty plausible. So... Social services took over Crystal's care and quickly placed her in a temporary foster home. At the time, they had no idea who she was or who her parents were. Meanwhile, according to the Olympian, Crystal's foster mother took her to the hospital to be treated for some minor scratches on her arms and a few bruises. There, the nurse who treated Crystal recognized her and was able to tell authorities who she was. How did that work out? I know. What are the odds, right? I don't know. I read that in a newspaper article. I don't know whether she treated her before, whether she knew the family. I don't yeah. know. It's very strange. But soon yeah. after... How many days later was that? I mean... It was just a couple days. Okay. So soon after, Crystal's maternal grandmother, Louise, arrived to confirm that Crystal was her granddaughter. Crystal was turned over to her care, which was a relief. According to Unsolved Mysteries, Crystal ran into her grandmother's arms the moment she saw her, and Louise was her guardian from then on. Well, that's a sweet sentiment, at least. But Louise wasn't able to shed any light on what had happened to her daughter, Diana, or Michael. It was almost as if the couple had walked into the woods and into another world, disappearing just as mysteriously as Crystal had appeared at the store in Spanaway. As for Crystal, according to Louise, she seemed quiet and withdrawn, not her usual cheery self. And under the circumstances, who could blame her? When you're two, your parents are your world. Significant search efforts were made to find Diana and Michael. Michael's father, who was a retired game warden, personally searched the areas where Michael set his traps. He also offered a reward for anyone who could locate Michael, his only son. Friends of Michael searched the woods, too, spending hours hiking his trapping route and finding nothing. Nothing out of the ordinary and no sign of Michael or Diana. They even searched aerially via helicopter. Months would pass before any answers would surface, Two months, to be exact. On February 18, 1986, the family's vehicle was finally located. The pickup truck, which belonged to Michael, was found on a seldom-used logging trail deep within the woods near Mineral. The man who made the discovery was hiking with his dog when he stumbled upon it. And it wasn't just the presence of an abandoned vehicle that struck him as strange. That was the least of it. A short distance from the truck, he found a woman's body. That woman, investigators would later discover, was Diana. But where was Michael? Investigators brought bloodhounds to the site. Whether these dogs were tracking dogs, trained to follow the scent of a specific person, or cadaver dogs, trained to detect and hone in on the smell of human decay, I don't know. 
But either way, according to the spokesman review, their search was unfortunately impeded by six inches of snowfall. Now, if you're like me, you might have wondered, does snow actually impede the detecting ability of a highly sensitive, highly trained bloodhound? I would imagine so, and it would also slow decay. Right, I looked into it, and the answer is sometimes. The science behind this vague answer is detailed and nuanced, but to put it in a nutshell as best I can, obviously, like you mentioned, the process of decomposition is significantly slowed by cold conditions. Michael went missing in December, and this search occurred two months later in February. If he died in the Pacific Northwestern woods like Diane, his body had obviously been kept chilled by natural conditions during this entire time period, producing less odor than it would have in hot, humid conditions. Well, it's essentially the exact opposite of that case we did in Hawaii. Right, it is. And then, on the other hand, when it comes to scent, winter produces less of it in general. If you live in an area of the world that experiences distinct seasons, think about it. If you walk outdoors in a wooded or rural area in the winter, when there's snow on the ground, do you experience more or less of an array of scents than in the summer? Well, I know I certainly sweat less in the winter unless I'm wearing a heavy jacket. Right, but when you walk outside, the, s the scents are so muted compared to in the summer. And winter just tends to smell cleaner, much like it sounds cleaner. It's the same way for canines, only their olfactory senses are, of course, infinitely more evolved than ours. This lessened palette of scents can potentially make it easier for canines to detect the strong odor of decay when it does occur, but it occurs at a slower pace with less distinct odors than it does during the summer. I would still think there'd be some level, depending on how cold that particular winter is, I'd think that there would be some level of decay going on after two months. Right, there would there would be. And um, other factors influencing how greatly snowfall impacts canines' ability to track scents also include, but aren't necessarily limited to, the relative humidity, the temperature, and when the precipitation occurred. Temperature extremes, whether hot or cold, have the potential to adversely affect a canine's ability to detect or track scent. So, snowfall is a relatively mixed bag. From what I've been able to determine via my admittedly non-expert research, snowfall can either inhibit or enhance scent detection or tracking efforts. So, is it possible that the snow and overall winter weather inhibited the canine's abilities to detect Michael if he was indeed present within the search area? Sure. I could see it hindering it. In any case, Michael was nowhere to be found. Only Diana was located, and it was obvious to investigators that her death had been a murder. The fatal attack that robbed Diana of her life included 17 separate stab wounds. In addition oh to these my. injuries, investigators found a tube sock tied around her neck. Another tube sock? Yes. Uh, Crimes you, in the 80s, I'm telling you. You know what? We, we've already done the study. We already know the data. If you have no clue what I'm talking about right now, you should go listen to the episode a few episodes ago. Yeah. Because um, we tested how durable tube sock is at tying people up. We did. Turns out they're pretty sturdy. So, do they think that... Why was the tube sock around the neck? If you've got 17 stab wounds, that seems like an unnecessary piece of evidence. It does. I believe it may be what's called a signature, and we'll get to that. 
but the truck itself also yielded potentially relevant evidence. Perhaps most noticeable of all were the bloodstains in the front seat. The blood was human, but that's all that's been definitively stated. Keep in mind, this happened in 1985, before the advent of modern DNA testing technology. Whether or not the blood belonged to Diana is officially unknown. Besides the blood, there was a note. It was written on a large manila envelope left tucked between the truck's windshield and dashboard. It read simply, in cursive handwriting, I love you, Diana. What that envelope contained, if anything at all, I have no idea. It's possible it was used merely as a writing surface, like a sheet of paper. But one thing's for sure, it piqued investigators' curiosity. Diana's mother, Louise, is reported to have said that she believed the handwriting was Michael's. However, professional handwriting analyses have been inconclusive, so we can't be sure who wrote that note. Wow. Yeah. It would, logically speaking, make sense if Michael had written it. However, he was Diana's boyfriend and the father of their child. It wasn't the note itself which was regarded as potentially significant, but the context within which it was found. And that is what I think as well. It's very strange being found that way. Unless it was like something that's just always there. Mm -hmm. But even then, if you can't verify that, it's suspicious. Mm -hmm. Naturally, when they realized Diana had been murdered and Michael was nowhere to be found, investigators reasoned that Michael might have been her killer. Statistically speaking, he was the most likely killer. In the U.S., 64% of female homicide victims are killed by their family members or intimate partners. That's according to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics. And if we look specifically at significant others, whether spouses or dating partners, roughly half of all female murder victims are killed at their hands. So, statistically speaking, the intimate partner is always a logical place to start, especially if the murder victim is a woman. Uh Speaking on statistics, I mean, that's what given the studies that have in modern day, too. I mean, back then, I don't know what studies there were, but I'd have to imagine he they'd quickly jump to thinking of him. As... I would imagine so. But with that being said, the raw statistics weren't all investigators were banking on. There was also the fact that Michael had been charged with acts of domestic violence against Diana. I mean, that's a really difficult... It, it's hard to come up beat that. Yeah, it's a big red flag for sure. According to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer... But did... Are you sure you said that right? The Intelligencer? Yes, it is the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. That's the real thing. I looked it up to make sure it wasn't a typo. That is a very real name of a very real paper. I can and see it from paper. Seattle. Yes, the Intelligencer. So, on October 19th, 1985, two months before Diana and Michael went missing, Michael was arrested and charged with domestic assault and malicious damage. Allegedly, he kicked down the door to Diana's apartment, threw her to the floor, and rubbed her face into the carpet, causing abrasions. Obviously, this alleged outburst of aggression, this violence clearly intended to humiliate and control, isn't a good look, especially when the victim of that assault ends up being murdered. After being arraigned on those charges, Michael was ordered by a judge not to have any contact with Diana. His trial date for those charges was set for January 22, 1986. 
because he went missing approximately a month before the scheduled trial, he never had the chance to stand trial on those charges. That is a very bad look. Of course, this means that whenever Michael ventured into the woods with Diana in December of 1985, he was breaking the law, violating a judge's order. Of course, this is also very common, as anyone involved with domestic criminal matters or even law enforcement at large can attest. Everyone knows somebody like this, I think. It's very common, and the reasons why victims may reunite with their alleged abusers after seeking charges or protective orders are varied and more complex than many individuals who've never been inside of an abusive relationship themselves would imagine. You may have heard it said before that women in abusive relationships leave and return an average of seven times before finally breaking free for good, and that's true. So it's easy to see why investigators were initially looking at Michael as a potential suspect in Diana's murder. The fact that they'd reunited didn't mean that all was magically going well, or that it would go well in the future. The note on the dash, potentially in Michael's handwriting, also seemed as if it might potentially have held some significance. By significance, do you mean it itself could be an intelligencer? (laughs) (laughs) For those of you that don't know, I just looked up the word intelligencer. and It's real. It's a real word used to describe a spy or an informant. Right, but... Nobody ever uses that word. I never heard of it until I heard of that paper. Can you imagine 007 Intelligencer? Come on. I'm a secret Intelligencer. So, then again, maybe the note wasn't so significant. Maybe the envelope had merely been a vessel containing some letter or gift from another day or occasion. Most of us probably have a few scraps of paper floating around our cars from days or weeks before. Or, if you're like Scott and me, maybe months before. (laughs) I I still have Valentine scripts up on the fridge. So, it's not really possible to know what significance the message scrawled on the envelope may have held in relation to Diana's death. In that respect, it sort of reminds me of Faith Hedgepeth's case, which we covered a few episodes ago. You know, the one with the note scrawled on the fast food bag? It's one of those clues that might be really significant, but when it comes to its true meaning, all we have are theories. Yeah, it could be either really groundbreakingly significant, or it could be absolutely no value whatsoever. Yeah, it might not. It might not even be an intelligencer. Oh. So, <laughs> when Would it comes... that com- make it a false intelligencer? It might. Fool's intelligencer. The pyrite of the clue world. So... Serious question, though. Why, at my work, do we call informants informants? Why are we not calling them intelligencers? I just feel like that would sound so much more classy. I think we both should submit uh, memos directly to the chief. Right. Will do. Will do. Monday morning, first thing. First thing. Right after you listen to this podcast. Words have power, okay? They do. (laughs) I, I would feel much more comfortable out on the streets being an intelligencer rather than an informant. Right, because informant kind of sounds like snitch. But intelligencer, you sound like some kind of social scientist out there doing the Lord's work. Snitches get stitches. Intelligencers get made fun of on a podcast. We don't really know what happens to them other than that, but... So, when it comes to theories about the message on the envelope, many believe that Michael wrote the note. For example, Diana's mother, Louise, told Unsolved Mysteries... 
I have cards that he had given her on different holidays and things. He signed exactly the same way. Well, if he signed exactly the same way, why was it inconclusive? Well, for one, and I couldn't help but think of this when I read that, it wasn't signed. It just said, I love you, Diana. If it was signed, we would know who had written it. Well, maybe so... <laughs> he didn't sign his name. Maybe he just signed, I love you, Diana, on all of his notes. It's not a signature. That's a message. I think what she's saying is that the handwriting looked similar. And I know that's not anything resembling scientific proof, but for what it's worth, the FBI also analyzed the handwriting. Their results were inconclusive. So whether the note was some kind of final goodbye or apology from a man who'd just killed the mother of his child, or whether it was something else altogether, we don't know. We don't even know if Michael wrote it. What we do know, though, is that Michael isn't the only potential suspect investigators have discovered. Before I tell you about that, though, I've got a bombshell to drop. One that takes this story 20 years into the future. Okay, here's the twist in this story. Michael didn't stay missing. At least, not indefinitely. On March 26, 2011, 26 years after Diana had been killed and Michael had disappeared, a hiker exploring the woods in minerals stumbled upon a partial human skull. As you've probably already guessed, that skull turned out to be Michael's. And perhaps just as startling as the fact that it was found at all is the fact that it was found in such close proximity to where Diana's body had been discovered. Did it also have a tube stock? No tube stock in sight that I know of. Although 26 years had passed between the discoveries of their remains, they'd each been found within a mile of the other. The entirety of Michael's remains have yet to be located, but it's easy to imagine how far animals can scatter bones given more than two decades. After all this time, it's fortunate that any of Michael's remains have been discovered at all. According to the Seattle Times, police also discovered other evidence near the skull, but haven't publicly revealed what that evidence is. I'm really interested in, like, whether it happened at the same time or decades later. Um, I don't think it happened decades later. If it didn't happen at the same time, it happened close to it is the impression I've gotten from everything I've read. So, naturally, this discovery rekindled interest in the case, sparking news stories for the first time in years. Finally, investigators and the public knew that Michael hadn't fled the scene of Diana's death. He'd likely been in the woods all along. Unfortunately, with only incomplete remains being discovered, there were still many questions about Michael's death that remained unanswered. Mainly, of course, how he died. Had he been murdered like Diana? Could it have been suicide? Or could he have been injured in the woods and died of exposure? Investigators have stated that based on the condition of the skull, they know that Michael wasn't shot in the head. Of course, that still leaves plenty of other possibilities. That, yeah, that's probably ruling out the least likely given the other conditions. Well, sure, but keep in mind that's one of the most common ways to commit suicide, especially for men. So the fact that we can rule that out, it's something. But it's still frustrating not to know, because knowing how he died would shed so much light on the case as a whole. That information could answer the question of whether or not he'd been involved in Diana's murder for good, potentially incriminating him, or finally absolving him of suspicion. And it could also finally answer a burning question. Was there a serial killer active in Washington's woodlands during the 1980s, stalking victims through the forest near Mineral? Many people suspect that there was, and the reasons why they think so are compelling. 
You see, Diana and Michael weren't the first couple to end up dead in those woods. There had been another shortly before them, and in each case, the female victims had been found the same way. Hence the tube suck. Right. Ruth Cooper, 42, and Steve Harkins, 27, went camping together in the woods near Mineral in August of 1985, about two months before Diana's murder and Steve's disappearance. Their campsite was located approximately 15 miles from where Diana would later be found dead. That is super concerning time. Right? Like Diana and Michael, Ruth and Steve were dating. Unlike Diana and Michael, no children were with them in the woods, although they did take their dog along for the weekend trip. The trip lasted longer than just the weekend, though. When the two didn't show up on Monday at the vocational school where they both worked, their families reported them missing. Four days after they'd set out to camp, a hiker made a nightmarish discovery. Steve still inside his sleeping bag and dead from a gunshot wound to the head. It looked as if Steve had been shot and killed while sleeping. Nearby, they found the couple's dog, also dead of a gunshot wound. Ruth, however, was nowhere to be found. Eventually, though, they did find Ruth. Two months later, in October, her body was discovered near where Steve's had been found. Her skull was located 50 feet from the rest of her body in her purse. Whether this decapitation was due to trauma she'd been subjected to during her murder or just animal activity during the following months, I don't know. That's I, very possible. Right, I couldn't find any sources that stated either way. What I do know, though, is that there was a tube sock tied around her neck. And even more compelling, the tube sock around Ruth's neck had been tied in exactly the same way the one around Diana's neck had been. I wonder if it was the same manufacturer of tube sock also. I don't know, but I know the knot was identical. There are numerous similarities between these two cases, the deaths of Diana and Michael and the slightly earlier deaths of Steve and Ruth, but the tube socks are hands down the most memorable. These cultural icons of the 80s left such an imprint on the public's imagination that people sometimes refer to these cases collectively as the tube sock killings. One area where these cases differ, though, is the manner in which the women were killed. Whereas Diana died of sharp force trauma, stabbed to death with an unknown weapon, the medical examiner initially only publicly stated that Ruth died of homicidal violence. According to an article from The Olympian, though, a spokesperson later stated that Ruth had died of a gunshot to the abdomen. Okay, and do we know of any cases after Diana's? I don't know of any. Okay. See, the biggest difference I see is the fact that he, the killer would have killed the dog in one instance and had some level of remorse or sympathy for the child enough to essentially take her to a Kmart. Here's another way to look at it. Even if he just wasn't somebody who loved kids... Um, a dog can attack you. It can alert people to your presence and what you're doing. A dog is a threat that may need to be neutralized. A two-year-old, not so much. I just love dogs. I don't... I don't know. They're both it's, innocent parties, but one is it, a threat and one isn't. So I could see why someone would kill the dog, but not the child. Anyway. That makes sense. Methods of killing aside, though, there's an obvious and nagging question here. What's with the tube socks? 
Neither woman was strangled to death with the sock, so it wasn't if they were used to kill the women. What was the point, then? Why bother? Of course, I can't tell you what the killer was thinking, but if ligature strangulation via tube sock wasn't necessary to cause the death of the victim, if the killer didn't need to do it, then I can only imagine that he did it because he wanted to, which would make it a signature behavior or a non-necessary element of the crime a killer adds strictly to fulfill some sort of emotional desire. Sexual attraction towards tube socks, like... (laughs) So, since ligature strangulation is often associated with sexually motivated killings, I can't help but wonder whether either of these women were sexually assaulted. I don't know, though. I don't know if anyone knows. It's possible that months of decomposition outdoors made it impossible for investigators to determine. It was a pretty poppin' time for tube socks. Ultimately, the tube socks tied around these women's necks are a mystery within a greater mystery. One of those details that's easy to get caught up in contemplating. An intelligencer of the highest levels. (laughs) So, both investigators and the public have wondered whether the slayings of the two couples might be the work of the same individual. And it's disturbing to imagine a serial killer lurking in the woods with a gun or a knife, waiting for human prey to unknowingly cross his path. I honestly can't see it being different people it definitely seems as if it was probably the same person especially given like even if there was coverage of the case the first case i I don't see how a copycat if you want to call it that could duplicate the knot unless it was purely luck right and it's pretty clear that if this is what happened If a serial killer was responsible for these crimes, his primary targets were the women. Whereas Steve was killed by a single gunshot wound to the head while in his sleeping bag, possibly while still asleep and left otherwise undisturbed, the women's deaths were more prolonged and presumably more terrifying. Diana obviously suffered terribly, being stabbed 17 times, and dying of a gunshot wound to the abdomen as Ruth did is undoubtedly a slower and more agonizing way to lose your life than being fatally shot in the head while sleeping. It's definitely a higher violence towards the women, without Mm -hmm. any doubt or hesitation. Right. At first, I was... My my first instinct was with Diana that it was overkill from a personal knowledge or motivation, but given the gunshot wound to the abdomen, that's feeling less personal. So... Maybe more confident as far as evolving as a killer goes? The 17 stab wounds to Diana's abdomen. It could be overkill because someone had a personal grudge or anger against her. Or it could also be overkill from someone who just had a grudge or anger against women. And they choose a woman to be a scapegoat for, you know, our entire gender. So, and that's what you'd expect to see from a sexually motivated serial killer, I think. The location of the both being attacked to the abdomen is also interesting to me. Mm -hmm. That's true. So, back to the two popular potential suspects. The only suspects law enforcement have ever pinpointed, according to the sources I could find, Michael and an unknown serial killer. The idea that Michael may have killed Diana was much more popular prior to the discovery of his remains. Until then, it looked as if he might have taken Diana's life and then absconded, somehow managing to stay off the radar for decades. Since the discovery of his skull in the woods, though, the 
serial offender theory has gained more steam. So let's stop and think. What would the crime have looked like if Michael really had committed it? Some people think it might have gone something like this. Something set off Michael's reportedly volatile temper, and this time he went too far. In a fit of rage, he attacked Diana, possibly with a hunting or utility knife he carried with him while in the woods. When he realized what he'd done, he took off in his blood-spattered truck with his daughter in the back, leaving Diana's body at the site. When he emerged from the thick woods and reached the town of Spanaway, he dropped his two-year-old daughter off somewhere where he knew she'd be found quickly, the Kmart store off the highway. Then he drove back to the site of the killing. Remembering the gruesome tube sock killing from a couple months ago, probably from a local news broadcast, the story was everywhere, he removed a similar sock from his own foot, it was the 80s after all, and tied it around Diana's neck to stage the scene and make it look as if she had been the victim of the same backwoods maniac who'd killed Ruth Cooper and Steve Harkins. By some coincidence, he ties the knot in the exact same way Ruth's killer did. Feeling regret now, he scrawls a note on a manila envelope inside the truck. I love you, Diana. It's an apology she can't read because she's gone. And his will to live went along with her. He can't face a future darkened by what he's just done. So he hikes away from Diana's body, one mile to be exact. And there he takes his own life by some unknown means, perhaps with the same knife he attacked Diana with. There's a lot of potential there, mm -hmm. but it's still... It also doesn't seem quite right, right? No, unless he had a more personal connection to the serial killer. Right, so... I think that this is probably the simplest scenario anyone can come up with when it comes to the Michael is killer theory, but it raises a lot of questions. Firstly, if Michael planned to take his own life, why would he bother to stage the scene of Diana's death with a tube sock so that it looked like someone else had killed her? This seems like a move someone would make if they were planning to go on living, to try to get away with the crime. For someone on the verge of suicide, it seems utterly pointless. The I just had this thought about it. What if while he was taking his daughter back home, mm -hmm. he started, after he'd lost the adrenaline of what just happened, it started to sink into him. And as he approached the Kmart, that's when he was taken over by the remorse and he'd already staged the body. Like if he'd planned to try to get away with it and then, and then he changed his mind. Yeah. Sure. But... That, that's the only thing I could think of, and then he went to go be with her. Right, but if that's the case, if he went to go be with her, then why hike a mile away from her body to take his own life? What would be the point? If he left the I love you, Diana note for her to see, wouldn't it make sense that he should also want her to see his final act of remorse? And if he regretted what he'd done, mightn't he have wanted to be closer to her in death? That's a very valid point. So, what if Michael had nothing to do with Diana's death? What if he was a victim too, likely of the same person who killed Ruth and Stephen? Well, that scenario might have looked something like this. The unnamed killer may have seen Diana and Michael enter the woods, or may have come across them at some point after they'd arrived. Posing as someone going to get a Christmas tree. Maybe. So they're exactly his type of preferred victim, a couple alone in a remote location where he can attack with little fear of being heard or discovered by anyone else. He might have killed Michael first since Michael, 
a pretty strong guy used to manual labor in the outdoors, posed a greater physical threat to him. Maybe Michael went out ahead of Diana and Crystal to scout for a good Christmas tree or to check a trap. Maybe the killer ambushed him while he was alone in the woods, killing him relatively quietly with a knife. Afterward, he may have gone to the pickup truck where Diana was waiting with her two-year-old daughter for Michael's return. He killed her violently, possibly more violently than he had Michael, inflicting 17 separate stab wounds. Then, to fulfill some sick desire of his own, he does the whole tube sock thing. He has no desire to kill a child, though, so he drives to the nearest big box store, possibly in Michael's truck, or maybe even in his own vehicle, and drops her off where he knows someone will find her. Afterward, if he used Michael's truck, he returns it to the scene. Alternatively, maybe the killer attacked while Diana and Michael were together at or near their truck. Maybe, probably unknowingly. He left Michael wounded but not dead when he left the scene to drop off Crystal and span away. Maybe Michael tried to walk away from the scene to find help, which would be his only hope if the killer took his truck. However, after a mile, he succumbs to his injuries. I guess the biggest thing I want to know with that is what direction was he from her body in relation to, like, his traps or the route he was working? I don't actually know. I just know I, that he was about a mile away. And I don't think they would know. And the other thing is, if they had people searching his traps mm-hmm. routes, why wouldn't he have been found? Well, from what I've read, where they were, where Diana was found and where Michael was found... They weren't actually, like, on the trap route. Okay. For whatever reason. So they like were they a, a distance away. It then yet. Yeah, so it's not like they were lying there by one of the traps or something. Okay. And this was a very heavily wooded area with a lot of thick vegetation, so. These are just theories, of course. If anyone really knows what happened to Diana and Michael, they haven't come forward with the information. And because of what happened in the woods that day, whatever it was... Parents lost a beloved son and daughter, siblings lost their sister and brother, and, most heartbreaking of all, a child was robbed of her parents. If you know anything about the deaths of Diana Robertson and Michael Reimer, please contact the Lewis County Sheriff's Office at 360-748-9286. That's all for this episode of Last Seen Alive. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Make sure you check out our website, lastseenalifepodcast.com for photos from the story and the links to the fascinating sources we've used to write it. While you're at it, follow us on Insta and Twitter at LSA Podcast. New episodes of Last Seen Alive go live every other Monday. See you then. Meanwhile, if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, please take a moment to leave Last Seen Alive a five-star review and tell your friends to check us out too. We really would appreciate it. And don't forget, this episode was brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash live to redeem your free membership trial and get a free audiobook of your choice like Journey into Darkness by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. Last Seen Alive is written and researched by Leah with special assistance by Gabriel and Ariel. Audio engineering and editing is provided by me, Scott.